let's go ahead and uh, get into this session. We do have a lot, a lot of material today, and uh, of course we've been we've been galloping like a motivated squirrel in a, in a cage in order to try to uh, get these things done. And it's uh, it's I know it's been a horse race uh, for us and uh, doing this. Because in one sense, all of Islam, as we're understanding Islam, all of Islam can be communicated really in first the word in the word Islam itself, which means submission. And to what are you submitting? You are submitting essentially to this message: La ilaha illa Allah, Muhammadun Rasulullah. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. And once you've got that down, you're on the road to becoming a Muslim. Or you're on the road to understanding what it is to become a Muslim. The, the other thing that we've been through, the, uh, on, on our first session we talked about what, what the religion of Islam really is. What, uh, what comprises the religion of Islam. What, what all Muslims believe. And last week we taught, or last week, we talked about why there are different forms of Islam and why they are somewhat different. We discovered the different divisions of Islam are not like the divisions in Christianity. The divisions of Christianity are primarily doctrinal and theological. The divisions of Islam are primarily political and traditional. Essentially, the biggest difference, you know, we've talked about the biggest difference, the two major brands of Islam, the dominant brand is the Sunni form of Islam. The Sunni form of Islam derives from those who follow the point of view that the successors of Muhammad were not appointed by Muhammad before his death, but rather came out of essentially the college of companions of Muhammad who formed the group and the leader that came out of that is the Caliph and the Caliphates the Caliphate form of the succession of Muhammad uh, of Islamic leadership formed out of that and those are the ones who follow the Sunnah the way, the pattern of life of Muhammad and of Islam and these are the Sunni Muslims there are many divisions, many doctrinal divisions, many variations of that. And most likely, the Muslims that you meet are going to be Sunni. Most likely. However, interestingly enough, in this community, there is, that is in our local community, there is a sizable community of Shia Muslims. Shia come from those who believe that the leadership, the early leadership of the, the Islamic movement, the successor, the lawful successor of Muhammad was his adopted son, son Ali. And that Ali should have been named the successor of Muhammad. And yes, there were wars fought over there. 
the first civil war in Islam was fought over that. And Ali's side lost. And Ali was assassinated. But these are those who follow, and their primary leadership, they look at, they look at leadership as being not primarily a political thing, but a spiritual leadership. And the spiritual leaders of the Shiite movement are called imams. Now, you can have an imam in every mosque, because an imam is a spiritual leader. In every, both Sunni and Shia. But in Sunni Islam, the imam is a, primarily a prayer leader. Whereas in Shia Islam, the Shiite school, Imam, there ultimately traces to the leadership of Muhammad and to a descendants of Muhammad. And there is a difference of opinion between the, in the Shiite movement, and there is a sizable population in this in this locale of those who follow a, the form of uh, Shia Islam that the last Imam. Was Ismail. And these are the Ismaili. Uh, we're not going to get into all of that and what are the variation of that, but by and large, these are not going to be radical Muslims. These are not going to be those who are trying to overthrow the world, uh, the Western world, and bring everything in the city. No, these are the ones who have, are going to have, you're going to be able to get along with these people. You know, but we do have these here. and you are liable to be one of those in this community. Uh, just kind of going through that. But uh, we've been talking about these things and uh, the origin, the roots of Islam. Today, our focus is going to be, well, we're continuing to uh, learn basic things a Christian should know about the religion of Islam in order to obey the commandment of God to love our neighbor as ourselves. question has come up. The uh, traditional Muslim greeting what does that mean and what is the derivation of that and should we reply in kind or is that is there something that's well essentially it is very similar to the Jewish greeting Shalom Alechem similar in there basically the same Semitic roots of that it means peace be unto you Peace be unto you. As a matter of fact, there is a very similar greeting conveyed to us in the New Testament, is it not? What is the variation that Christianity brought into that traditional greeting? Not merely peace be unto you, but what? Something was added to it. What? Grace and peace be unto you. Grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is where we understand the origin of grace. If you would like to respond, if, if you and, and uh, uh, greeting a Muslim, and he, that Muslim greets you with salam alaikum, greet them back the same way if you wish to do so. You are saying peace be unto you. But if you wish to do, take that a little bit further into the gospel, you know what to do there. All right?
We are also seeking to fulfill the command of our Lord Jesus to proclaim the good news to every person, including Muslims. We don't want to be afraid to witness to Muslims. Um, but we do need to understand what they, where they're coming from if we're going to minister to them correctly. We've covered these topics so far. Um, today we're going to work on this one, decoding the Quran. The Quran is a mysterious book to us, and... I don't think I'm going to eliminate the mystery, but maybe uh, blow away some of the clouds uh, from it so that we can understand it a little bit better. Um, we're going to seek to understand something of the content and character of the Quran. not going to make an exhaustive survey of it. We're not going to go through it uh, surah by surah by any stretch of the imagination. Don't have time to it, but we are going to look at these things. How do Muslims approach the Quran? What does the Quran teach? Uh, how should Christians respond to the Quran? Um, a source that I'm using today, for today, that uh, you might be helpful, was prepared. This uh, title, under this understanding of the Quran, a quick Christian guide to the Muslim holy book, prepared by Mateen Alas. Mateen Alas uh, grew up in a devout Muslim home. But he came to a knowledge of Christ. He is a uh, he is a pastor. He is an American pastor today. Uh, but he understands Islam from the from the inside. He and he is able and he understands and knows and understands what the Quran is about. Particular some you know, uh, anyone. This is one of many resources, but this is one that I consulted particularly in preparing today, just in order to help shorten my preparation. Uh, it's, uh, as we're going to see, there's a lot to do. Uh, but that just helped me out, and I thought I'd refer that to you. Uh, we, before we get any further into the Quran today, let's do for ourselves what any Muslim would do as he would prepare to talk, deal with this topic. And let's pray. But our prayers are not like Muslim prayers. Our prayers are not recited prayers to a God who wants to listen to us recite. They are the prayers, the calling out, the supplications of a heart to a Father who loves us. Let's speak to Him today. Our Heavenly Father, as we approach this study, I pray that you will guard our minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. Keep us focused upon your Son. And give us clarity by His light in that which we are going to be looking at today in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We've talked about in the history last week, talked a little bit about the history of, of this book, and won't go into detail on it today. For all of these talks, they're, they're going to be posted online. Have we gotten, I don't know if we've gotten the firewall issues resolved for the church website as far as posting them, but they are also available at choir.cbcbryan.org. And all of these talks, and more, are available on that website. Uh, and uh, if you request also, we are also uh, putting out, and I am 
the uh, PowerPoint presentations are also going to be made available. And so uh, we'll be glad to make that available to you as well. But uh, we talked a little last week about the history of the Quran. I won't go into it as far as today, but just to, to remind you that for the Muslim, the Quran is not just, well, it is a miracle. The Quran is a miracle. Uh, Muhammad himself acknowledged prophets perform miracles. Prophets are validated by their miracles. And so his, those who were skeptics of him said, well, what miracle have you performed? What sign will you show us? And he said, the sign and the miracle that I perform is the Quran. They believe it's a miracle book for a number of reasons. First of all, they will say to you, Muhammad was illiterate. And yet he produced this marvelous book. Now, they base the belief that he was illiterate on a single verse in the Quran, which is actually rather ambiguous in its translation. I'm not going to get all into that uh, because there's a whole line of things in that, but it, it really is not important that your arguments about it would not be persuasive to a Muslim who believed that. The main point is, they believe that the Quran itself is miraculous. They believe that it is, let me put it this way, for the Christian, the primary and ultimate revelation of God to us is the person of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Actually, with those words, the Muslim might actually find agreement. All things were made through it, and without it was not anything made that was made. The Muslim might agree with those words in that translation. What they would not agree with is the word became flesh and dwelt among us. They could not agree with that. But to the Muslim, the word became paper and was given to us. What I'm saying is that the closest thing in Islam to the incarnation of God coming in the flesh is the, bring, is the sending of the Quran through His Messenger Allah to us in the Quran. If you don't understand that, then you do not understand why Muslims become powerfully enraged when someone misuses the book. Now, I have, I've known some Christians in my life who have had a very deep reverence for the Bible itself. I've had, you know, some who, who treated the physical book with great reverence. Now, I can understand that, but the reverence that is, uh, I've seen Christians give to the book, even of that deep sort, don't put the book on the, uh, just out on the, don't, don't just leave it out. Put it in a special place where it will be you know, protected. Don't set your coffee mug on your Bible. Not because it's impractical, but because it's irreverent. I mean, I'm, that's, take that attitude and multiply it many times and you will understand 
the Muslim reverence for the Bible because it is a miracle book. It is that which God gave to us by a miracle through his prophet Muhammad. It began on the night of power, which is Ramadan. The exact night is not specified in either the Quran or in the Hadith, the Islamic tradition. But it, it was late in the month of Ramadan. And by the way, it was Ramadan when, uh, when Muhammad was in the cave when he received his revelations. That's why Ramadan is the sacred month in which the fast is declared. The night of power is how it's known in Islam. When the angel Gabriel came to Muhammad and scared him out of his socks with the revelation that, hey, you're a prophet, and you're going to bring my word to everybody. And so, Muslims celebrate that on Ramadan day 27. The 27th of Ramadan. And that becomes the most sacred day in Islam. The Quran is not translatable. You say, well, I've seen translations of the Quran. No, you have not. And what I am going to impart to you, do not regard what I give to you today in English as a translation of the Quran. The Quran cannot be translated. It can be interpreted, but it cannot be translated. This is very significant also. If you are going to become a Muslim, you are going to have to learn the Quran in Arabic. You are going to have to memorize it in Arabic. You are going to have to memorize it because it is because it is the Quran that you are going to be praying in Arabic. It is not lawful to think that you have the Quran, the Word of God, in any other language but Arabic. Now, there are differences of opinion among Islamic scholars as to whether uh, God translated His Word into Arabic for the, be, for the benefit of the Arab and the Arabs who would be receiving it first, or whether the language of heaven is Arabic. You can guess the, the opinion of the most zealous of the Muslims. So what you have in English or in some other language is not the translation of the Quran. It is an interpretation, a rendition. It is an instruction which will guide you to what it means, but you can only find out what it really means by learning Arabic and learning the Quran in Arabic. This is very different from the Christian understanding of the Bible. You have a translation of the Bible. Now, the translations vary, do they not? Especially with the multiplication of translations in our present day, right? And you have those who believe that the only really valid translation is the King James Version. You do have those. That still does not even closely approach the belief of the devout Muslim. Because from the very beginning, I mean from the very beginning, do you realize that the first Bible that was used 
by the New Testament church was a translation of the Old Testament. It was not the Old Testament in Hebrew. It was not the Masoretic text of Hebrew. It was the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This was the Bible that was used by the apostles. It was the one that was used and quoted by Paul, by James, by Peter. They used the Septuagint. And they considered it the Word of God. The words, the Word of God can be translated and understood. The translation may not be infallible, but that does not take away from the infallibility of the word that it translates. But the devout Muslim would believe that that would be an irreverent thought to think that you actually have the Quran when you have it in an interpretation. No, don't think so. It is not translatable. Surah 80, verses 11 through 16, for it is indeed a message of instruction. Therefore, let, th let whoso will keep it in remembrance. It is in books held greatly in honor, exalted in dignity, kept pure and holy, written by the hands of scribes, honorable and pious and just. It is a book that they hold great reverence for. Um, it was brought to Muhammad according to, well, by Gabriel. But this is an interesting thing. Gabriel's name, Gabriel is mentioned once by name. After the afterward, elsewhere in the Quran, simply identified as an angel who brought and many presume that that was the same angel, the angel Gabriel, but sometimes it, it's a little bit ambiguous. But okay, Gabriel. But here's another interesting thing. There are large, there are several uh, passages in the Quran that say that uh, it was the Holy Spirit who brought the message of God to Muhammad. And what we have, what you have in, in the Quran and his Islamic understanding of the Quran, a conflation of Gabriel and the Holy Spirit. So that, do not understand when the, when the Muslim speaks of the Holy Spirit, and he will speak of the Holy Spirit, it's in the Quran. But the Holy Spirit is not a person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is a spirit being who brought the message of God to Muhammad. But here's another interesting facet, another interesting detail. In, well, let's just kind of bring this up. First of all, who is an enemy to Gabriel? For it is he who hath revealed the scripture to thy heart. So, For it is he, that is Gabriel, who hath revealed the scripture to thy heart by Allah's leave, confirming that which was revealed before it, and a guidance and glad tidings to believe. To that which was revealed before it. Well, there's more than that. Muhammad believed that his revel the revelation given to him wasn't really new. That this is the same thing that the prophets have been preaching all the way since back to, the, back to Adam. Says it, I'm just I'm just giving you an update, but it's basically Prophet one point one hundred and twenty five thousand and one, something like that. But it was just kind of an update. More one thing I didn't mention in the fact that it's a miracle book. The Quran is actually in heaven. 
the real Quran is in heaven. And what we see on earth, God sent to earth that which is in heaven. Now we see, that's kind of, there's an, something similar to that in Christian doctrine. In Christian doctrine, there is an altar in heaven. Is there not? There is an altar in heaven on which the blood of Christ has been sprinkled once and for all. There was a heavenly tabernacle to which Moses was given the pattern. There is a, so there are similarities between Christian doctrine and Jewish doctrine and the, this doctrine of Islam. So the real Quran is in heaven just as the real temple is in heaven. So just as the real altar of sacrifice is in heaven. But for the Muslim, it's all about the Quran. The Quran is where it's at. You're kind of getting an understanding now of why the Muslim is so avid, avidly devoted to the Quran. Say the Holy Spirit brought it down from thy Lord in truth. So it wasn't just Gabriel, it was the Holy Spirit. But this is a word from Muhammad's favorite wife, Aisha. His favorite wife, that is, after uh, Khadijah died and he began to be a polygamist. The first revelations the prophet received, and Aisha, you remember, this is the girl that he married when she was seven years old. She was his favorite. The first revelations the prophets received were in true dreams. And he never dreamt, but it came to pass as regularly as the dawn of the day. Now this is not in the Quran, but it is in the Hadith. And it is, um, and the Hadith is authoritative in Islam. It is not the word of God, but is authoritative in understanding the movement, the theology, and the doctrines of Islam. And most of the doctrines of Islam are actually drawn more from the Hadith than from... Uh, the, so, I mean, there is that reference there to, to dreams. H-A-D-I-T-H. Um, let's talk about Muhammad's ascent. Let's see, I just got out of that for a second. Hang on just a moment. I need to... There we go. Okay. Another thing about how Muhammad received the, uh, the Quran, there is a story. Matter of fact, there is one verse in one surah it speaks of Muhammad's ascent, which is miraj, which is the Arabic word for ascent. Praise be to him who carried his servant by night from the Majid al-Haram, which is the sacred mosque of Mecca, to the Majid al-Aqsa, the farthest mosque, namely the mosque in Jerusalem. There was a, we, it is not known, in and it is debated in tradition, uh, was this a vision, was, or was it a literal trip, was it a literal journey, or whatever, and it seems that most scholars 
most Islamic scholars uh, tend to think that this was a literal journey. But notice how it says it. He carried his servant by night from the mosque in Mecca. To, now, you do understand that by camel you cannot get from Mecca to Jerusalem overnight, right? So this is understood not to be, for those who believe it was a literal trip, not to be a uh, anything but a miracle. So that he was carried from here. This is so he received his uh, he received something, some revelation here. Now the question is, was it a vision or was it a journey? And uh, was it from Mecca to Jerusalem? There is a tradition that sprang up that it was he went from Mecca, he was carried from Mecca to Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem was carried into heaven, into the highest heaven. And on his way, it kind of went through the levels of heaven, the seven levels of heaven, and spoke to different ones on, on each path and each way on, uh, on the way up. And we got up to the final place. He, he bargained with God. Because God had demanded that the faithful pray 50 times a day. And Muhammad didn't think that that was... A reasonable expectation. So, I mean, that these people have to work. They have to, you know, you're, you're going to have, have people. They won't, won't even be able to do anything. They won't be able to get anything done that you want them to get done if they keep stopping and having to bow down and pray 50 times a day. And so, according to the tradition, uh, he bargained with God and uh, went back to the bargaining table with God for five different times and finally got God down to five times a day. And they said, well, he could, he, could, he could probably have done it and gotten God down a little bit less, but he was embarrassed about going back and asking God one more time. And so he, they settled for five. And so that's why the Muslim prays five times a day. That is not in the Quran. It's not in the Hadith. But it is in a tradition which is carried on in many segments of Islam. When you hear about Muhammad going to Jerusalem and ascending to heaven... This is the tradition that is speaking of. Not all Muslims believe that, but enough of them do believe it, that you know, they actually believe that it is from the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem that Muhammad ascended to heaven. And that is one excuse that they give why that rock, why the Dome of the Rock is so sacred and why it is untouchable and why it must not it must remain inviolate, inviolate to especially the hand of Jews. And their claim on that sacred territory is greater than that of any Jew or any Christian. Yes, question. Okay. Um, you said praying for them is just reciting. Yes. Right. So how long does it take for one of these prayer times? Not a lot. Not a long time. Not a long time. Five minutes? Yeah. Minutes? Okay. Mm-hmm. They do not last long, but they do interrupt your day five times. Yeah, if it were mm -hmm. like 50 times a day, I would right. say they wouldn't get anything done. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, the Quran is a perfect book without error, according to the Muslim. There are no errors. 
Okay, does this reflect, uh, do we have a doctrine like this? Do we believe that the Bible is perfect without error? Okay, we don't believe it enough, not according to the Muslim. Why? Because we study God's Word with a completely different eye. Except for, well, I mean, there are, again, there are those who, who do have a very narrow, restrictive, literally-minded approach to the Bible. But, which compares to the Muslim approach to the Quran, there, are, there is a segment of Christianity that does that. But by and large, Christianity, even among evangelical Christians who believe in the doctrine of inerrancy, do not ascribe to it the level of inerrancy that the Muslim ascribes to the Quran. This is the doctrine of inerrancy on steroids. Discrepancies between the Quran and the Bible, by the way, if you read the Quran, you will read Bible stories. Lots of them. But they don't look like the Bible stories in the Bible. There are sometimes insignificant differences, or minor differences, I don't want to say that they're insignificant, but there are minor differences and then there are sometimes huge differences between the stories. And sometimes, sometimes it looks like if you've read the stories and the, the story in the Bible, and then you read that same story in the Quran, you look at it and you think, okay, somebody's missing the point here. And you'll see, so you'll see a number of discrepancies between the Bible and the Quran. Why is that? Because according to the Muslim, the Bible has been corrupted. Now, they haven't been able to come up with any demonstrate, demonstrable, incorrupt copies of the Bible anywhere. But just take Muhammad's word for it, the Bible is corrupted. Discrepancies between the surahs. You'll be reading the Quran, and you'll be reading a surah that says this, and then you'll be reading along another Quran, you'll see a surah that contradicts it directly. Discrepancies between the surahs. Well, two reasons for that. One of them is it's Allah's prerogative. Allah can change his mind if he wants to. None of our revelations do we abrogate or cause to be forgotten, but we substitute something better or similar. Knowest thou not that Allah hath power over all things? If Allah wants to change something, he can change it. Well, but then there was that issue of the satanic verses. We talked about that last week. Um, the satanic verses, those are the ones that were actually written out. They were censored from the Quran. You can't read the satanic verses in the Quran. They were censored. Why were they censored? This is the only thing that was ever scratched out of the Quran because it is said that they were given by Satan. The, the, those verses were the ones that said the three goddesses that were revered in Mecca were, you could they were intercessors and you could go and you could pray to them and they would pray to Allah for you. And Muhammad, after receiving that revelation, uh, brought in the elders of Mecca, applauded him and his own followers said, what is wrong with you? This is not what you've been telling us. And they, they put such severe pressure on him that he went back to Allah and got a correction of what he had to say. He said, well, it was Satan who brought me that. 
Uh, and so they scratched that out, and then uh, he said, he came up with this in its place in Surah 53. Shall you have male children and Allah female? Behold, this would be a most unjust division. These, he's, he had said, these are Allah's daughters. And, you can, and then he came back and said, no, if Allah had children, they wouldn't, be, they wouldn't be women, they would be men. If Allah had children, they would be sons, not daughters. What's wrong with you? To even think that Allah would have daughters. And so, after that, the Meccans just thought of him as being persona non grata. But I mean, that's where that came from. So that was, there was that one incident in which Muhammad apparently listened to the wrong spirit. <laughs> the Quran to the Muslim is the most beautiful of all books. Its, its Arabic is pure, according to the Muslim <clears throat> And all other Arabic should be derived from it. Now, it's, this is an interesting thing. That, well, I'm not going to get too much into this. Let me just go through it. Is, the, is Arabic the language of heaven? I've already mentioned that. It is a book to be revered. How much revered are, is it? Well, they will wash their hands before they read it. Children are taught to do this. Before you even pick up a Quran, you wash your hands. Um, you handle it reverently. You do not place it on a lower shelf or a middle shelf. You place it always on the top shelf. No book should be above the Quran. Literally, in your home, no book should be placed above the Quran. When you are reading it, you read it in silence. You do not have music playing in the background. And when you are doing it in public, you do it with si in silence and you do it without any you don't sing the Quran you don't have music in your worship services that is irreverent that is not of God the Muslim worship service is very different from ours I don't care what church you go to Christians sing always have Muslims do not sing in the worship services. He said, wait a minute. Don't they sing the verses of the Quran? Don't they sing them in recitation? No. The chant and the form of doing that in which the verses of the Quran are memorized and recited in that chant form, those are not considered to be music. That is not considered to be music by the Muslims. That is a manner of speaking. It is a very uh, prescribed manner of speech, but it is not singing. No, it's a quiet place. It is a book not to be questioned or investigated. Why? Because it is inerrant. How do you know it's inerrant? Have you ever investigated that? Have you ever checked it out? Do you, no. Don't even go there. Because the honor of Allah is at stake. Always the honor of... And so there you see the Arabic honor ethic. It is more about honor than it is about glory. And it is always more about honor than it is about love.
So, why are there riots in the streets when someone burns a Quran? Or when there are rumors of someone having mistreated a Quran? you understand this, min- this mindset and this understanding how Muslims respond to the Quran, then you understand a little bit. Just, uh, I've given these terms to you on this. I'm not going to dwell on them very much, uh, the, but the Quran defines itself. Just the Bible defines itself. The Quran defines itself. You can go to Psalm 119 and see the seven different synonyms for God's word that are given in that psalm, in that very reverent psalm about God's word. The Quran throughout gives a number of names for itself. And these are, uh, these are among them. The Quran itself is the establisher of truth. The Quran is wisdom. The Quran is message. The Quran is explanation. It is straight path. It is philosopher. The Quran also describes itself with a number of terms. Now look at these. I want you to look at them real closely. The good, the inspiration, the wonderful, the exalted, the excellent, the purified, the light, the mighty, the uniform, the lofty, the blessed, the proof, the mercy. Anything strike you about that list of self-descriptions of the Quran? What strikes you about that? These are things, terms that we use for Jesus, and they are also terms that the Muslim uses for Allah. Just as for us... Christ is the image of God, His Father. So also for the Muslim, the Quran is the image of Allah. Let's talk about the unique features and the structure of the Quran. You have 114 surahs arranged roughly not roughly by length, not chronology. If you, some, uh, it's, somebody asked, should we read the Quran? Well, first of all, you are free in Christ to read the Quran. You are not forbidden from reading the Quran. Don't let any Muslim tell you that. Don't let anybody else tell you that. You are not forbidden from reading the Quran. Personally, I don't see why you would necessarily want to unless you have a specific purpose for it. If there's a specific purpose for understanding a certain thing or for ministering to... If you are going to be a missionary to Muslims, I think you should read the Quran. If you have a particular Muslim to to whom you are needing to minister, and this is a, a Muslim who is very educated in the Quran, you will want to know what's in the Quran. But before you do, I suggest that first of all, you have read the entire Bible through, that you have read the New Testament through at least three times, that you know the Gospels very, very well, and that you are daily in the Word of God and in prayer yourself. You have 114 surahs. They are arranged by length and not by chronology. So if you're going to try to start reading the Quran like you read the Bible starting with Genesis, you start with Genesis, you read, through, uh, you read from Genesis through 2 Kings, and you've got the 
story laid out of which the rest of the non-chronologically related uh, parts of the Bible can be fit into. You read the Gospels and through the book of Acts and you've got a basic chronological framework. You've got that. You don't have that in the Quran. So this is very, this makes it very difficult because there is no, it's hard to know the context for what is being said in the Quran. Because the Quran, except for the first surah, it basically runs from the longest surahs to the shortest ones. The first surah is short. Surah number two is the longest. So you've got 114 of them. That you each They have titles that are drawn from something in the content. Some of them are not words that can be translated at all. And others of them are pretty mundane translations, as we're going to see. Uh, all of them, every surah except one, surah 9, is introduced by the Bismillah, which is this phrase, in the name of Allah, the merciful, the compassion. Every one of the surahs begins with that. Except surah 9. I'm not going to go into reasons for that. It's not really significant right now. But the... Uh, that's just what it is. Another unique feature is the Rukuah. The section divisions for the reader to pause and to bow in reverence. Surahs, especially the long surahs, are divided into sections. So that after each section, you are reading in your personal devotional reading. You get to the end of the section, you stop. You bow down. Put your face on the floor. And then you rise up and open again, and continue to read. And uh, you have the juice, one of 30 divisions in the Quran to guide the reader through Ramadan. Uh, it's basically prescribed reading, so that during the month of Ramadan, you can take these juice and know how much of the Quran you can read so that you can read through the Quran in 30 days. And you've got some mystery letters that you will see in the Quran. 29 surahs begin with anywhere from 1 to 5 Arabic letters whose meaning and placement there are known only to Allah. That does not keep some Muslim mystics from speculating on it and trying to figure out mystical hidden meanings behind each one of these things. And so. But that's what you've got. This is what you're going to see when you read the Quran. When you're reading and reciting the Quran, if you're a Muslim, you begin with preliminaries, washings. You will literally wash your hands. You will pray. And your prayer will be, I seek the protection of Allah against the cursed Satan. In reading of the Quran, particularly public reading of the Quran, Amin is pronounced at the end of Surah 1, Fatiha, and Surah 2, the cow. Amin means what? Amen. Amin is the Arabic word for Amen. Amen is a Hebrew word 
Anin is an Arabic word. In public reading of the Quran, there will be a public response. This is a traditional response. It's not in the Quran itself. But when they are reading Surah 67, Dominion, that's the title of that, in verse 30, it will come, tell me, if your water were to sink away, who then could supply you with flowing water? And your response as a congregation be, will be, Allah brings it to us, and He is Lord of all the worlds. They just do this. It's like Rocky Horror Picture Show, when you, you know, if you say along with it, you know, I'm sorry, I, that was terrible. <laughs> it's like the doxology, and what, okay, that's, that's, okay, that better comparison. In Surah 75, Resurrection, uh, verse 75 of Surah 75, the question comes, is he not able to give life to the dead? And the response of the congregation, yes, for he is my Lord Most High. Surah 1, Fatiha, the opening one. Also chapter of praise and the seven recitals. Those are also uh, traditional titles. This was regarded as by Muhammad as the greatest chapter in the Quran. Dearer to him than all the treasures of the world. This is it in its entirety. In the name of Allah, the beneficent, the merciful. Praise be to Allah, Lord of the worlds, the beneficent, the merciful. Master of the day of judgment. Thee alone we worship. Thee alone we ask for help. Show us the straight path. The path of those whom thou hast favored, not of those who earn thine anger, nor of those who go astray. Surah 2, excuse me, Surah 112 is another important chapter, another important passage in the Quran. Because just as in the Bible, there are all of the, all scripture is God breathed, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Amen? That, 2 Timothy 3.16, you remember? Okay. Likewise, the Quran. All of the Quran is God's word. But just as for us, all of, all of Scripture is inspired and all of Scripture is profitable, but not all are on an equal level in terms of significance, in terms of importance, in terms of go-to. And I'm bringing out to you the go-to passages of the Quran. Surah 112 is one of them, the Surah, surah titled Purity also regarded by Muhammad, who once assured a follower who recited it in, of his place in paradise. The guy said, said, you. He recited this surah. And because he recited it, and recited it word perfect, Muhammad said, you are going to be in paradise. It is both anti-pagan and anti-Christian. Say, He is God, the one and only. God, the eternal, the absolute. He does not beget, nor is He begotten. And there is none like Him. Then there is Surah 36, Yasin. Don't know what Yasin means. I don't know if it means anything. I don't, I've never seen a translation of the word. Muhammad said, The heart of the Quran is the chapter Yasin. Everyone who reads it, for him God will write rewards equal to those garnered for reading the Quran ten times. What does it say? By the Quran, full of wisdom, 
Thou art indeed one of the messengers on a straight way. It is the revelation sent down by him, the exalted in might, most merciful, in order that thou mayest admonish a people whose fathers had received no admonition, and who therefore remain heedless. There is surah number two, the cow. The longest surah. The greatest importance the most important verses in this surah, the last two verses, they summarize the central message of Islam and lead to a prayer for mercy, for forgiveness, and for victory. The apostle believes in what has been revealed to him from his Lord as do men of faith, and they say, we hear and we obey. We hear and we obey. We seek your forgiveness, our Lord. On no soul does God place a burden greater than it can bear. It gets every good that it earns, and it suffers every ill that it earns. Have mercy on us. You are our protector. Give us victory over the infidels. There is so much here to understand of Islam right in these two verses. That's why there is no gospel in Islam. Because you don't need a savior. You just need to do right. God hasn't put on any soul more than he can bear. So your problem is, you just need to get your head straight and do right. And God will forgive you. No matter what you've done, God will forgive you. There's the throne verse. Surah 2, 255. Contained in Surah 2, it's, one of the, it's the one verse Muhammad considered superior to every verse in the Quran. Allah, there is no God but he. The everlasting one. Neither slumber nor sleep overtakes him. To him belongs whatever is in the heavens and whatever is on the earth. Who can intercede with him except by his permission? He knows what happens to his creatures in the world and what will happen to them in the hereafter. And there will never compass anything of his knowledge except that which he wills. His throne extends over the heavens and over the earth. And he feels no fatigue in guarding and preserving them. And he is the most high, the most great. Are you, are you seeing here that there is some truth embedded in Islam. Can you see that? I can read those verses in the context of God's word given to us through our Lord Jesus Christ and I can glorify Him with those verses. Some other verses, not so much. The Surah of Light is most cherished by the Sufi mystics. It's a sublime poem. Absolutely beautiful. i just put it up there for you. You won't read it through all the way, but it just... Uh, some, it, just an example of some of, the, some of the beauty of the poetry of the Quran. And then some of the Quran, maybe it's beautiful in Arabic, but it didn't come off so beautiful in English. It's pretty pedantic in some places, but that is not one of them. That is an absolute. The surahs of refuge and protection, Psalm 113 and 114. Uh, again. Some beautiful. Now, very quickly, what does the what the what does the Quran teach about jihad? It's a concern for many of us today, because we look at that and you see quoted in the news, and then you see, of course. By the way, let me just a reminder that I gave you first day. If what you if you get information about Islam from social media, let me just say. Let me just say no. Not that there's not some good information out there, but unless you have criteria by which to measure what's good and bad, go somewhere else. Get 
a more validated source because what is what's given to you is always always by someone with an agenda. Be careful about that. It will affect your attitude toward your neighbor. What we have been doing with this session is we have been avoiding polemics against Islam. It's not my objective to try to point out all of the errors of Muhammad and all of the errors of it. There, there's a place for that and a time to do that. That's not what I've been asked to do with this series of sessions. We have not been trying to... Uh, our, our objective has been to inform you as to what Islam is about and not to critique everything in it. But there are some things that we, we do need to see. And what does the Quran really teach about jihad? Because you've got different, you've got different uh, currents coming through on this. The word jihad doesn't mean holy war. It means struggle and exertion. Uh, there are... Uh, I'm not seeing something coming up. There are four jihads. There's the jihad of heart, the jihad of mouth, the jihad of pen, and the jihad of sword. And who you, who you are exercising jihad against are the enemies of Islam. Primarily, now, especially the uh, jihad uh, of mouth, now, jihad of heart, you're dealing with the enemy of attitudes and things within yourself that would keep you from submitting to Allah. But the jihad of, of mouth and pen and sword will be waged against kufr, unbelievers who will die in their sins or go to hell at the judgment day. Uh, kufr are those who, who oppose the spread of Islam and they must be defeated. Those who oppose the spread of Islam must be defeated the mushkirun, mushkirun, the unbelievers who commit the sin of shirk. Shirk is that of ascribing any kind of connection of the deity with that which is human, or that which is animal, or that which is simply natural. So, the primary offenders, those who commit shirk, are primarily Jews, and then second to that, Christians. They are enemies of the true faith, and so those are the ones... Now, now there are four stages in Muhammad's development of the doctrine, or not, the Quran's development, because the Muslim will deny that it was Muhammad who developed the doctrine, that it was given to him. But there are four stages in how this came about. In the early stages of Muhammad, in his preaching in Mecca... He spoke of a jihad that was a kind of jihad of persuasion. Invite all in the way of the Lord with wisdom and beautiful preaching and argue with them in ways that are best and most gracious. It was about persuasion. When he moved to Medina and uh, found himself uh, being attacked by the Meccans, jihad move to the attitude of defense. Fight in the cause of Allah against those who fight you, but do not transgress limits. God loveth not transgressors. When it came to Muhammad beginning to wage war, 
on Mecca, on Mecca and on other Arabic city-states. Jihad went on the offensive. When the forbidden months are passed, then fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them. And then they're moved into a fourth, there's a fourth movement in the Quran of the jihad of expansion. Fight those who believe not in God nor acknowledge the religion of truth, even people of the book, until they pay the jizah. That's a humiliating tribute. That they pay the jizah with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. We're going to wind up our session. We can't leave. I know we have just passed the noon hour. Bear with me just for a few minutes. We're going to wind up our session. In the Quran, Jesus Christ in the Quran, who he is. He is a prophet and apostle. He is equal in status to Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Muhammad. He is the Messiah of God, the Spirit from God, the Word of God, and then the Word of Truth. He is the son of the Virgin Mary, or Miriam. Miriam is the Arabic way of saying the name Mary. But the interesting thing about that is there seems to be, at least in one story in the Quran, a confusion between the Mary, who is the mother of Jesus, and the Miriam, who is the sister of Moses. It's kind of an oscillation of that. Okay. Is that a contradiction in the Quran? No, of course, the contradiction is in the Bible. If we, if we had the correct information, we would know that Muhammad got it right from the revelation from Allah, and we are the ones who have it wrong. He, is, he was a worker of miracles, even in infancy and childhood. He worked miracles. And there are things that are recorded. There are stories, miracle stories, that are recorded in the Quran, which you can see are derived from apocryphal gospels about Jesus. For example, one in which he formed a, clay, a pigeon or a, a bird out of clay uh, and breathed into it in the clay, and the clay bird became alive and flew away. That's in one of the apocryphal Gospels. It's also in the Quran. But other things. He was a work of miracles. Even in infancy and childhood, he was doing miraculous things. He was taken by God into heaven. And he is returning to earth. He is physically, bodily, re- Jesus is coming again, according to the Quran. In the, who is he not, according to the Quran? He is not God's son. God can't have a son. He doesn't have sons. He doesn't have anybody. If he did have son, if they did have children, it would be a son. But he doesn't have sons because Allah is um, removed from everything like this. There, he is singular. He is only one, and there is none beside him. He is the Lord, the Judge, the Savior. He is not the Lord, Judge, Savior, or Redeemer. Allah alone can be called that. This passage, the Christians say the Messiah is the Son of God. That is what they say with their mouths imitating the sayings of the unbelievers of old. God, fight them. How they lie. They have taken their doctors and monks and lords besides gods and the Messiah, Son of Mary, when they were commanded to worship the one, worship only one God. There is no God but He. Praise and glory to Him. Far be it, far be from what they associate with Him. Well, we're not going to leave it at that. We're going to close with what Jesus said about who he was. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my 
Say it. And no one knows but the Son, except the Father. And no one knows the Father, except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. There is the real divide between Christianity and Islam. That's the heart of the matter. Read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And go through. As a matter of fact, in view of all of this, go back and read Hebrews chapter 1. And compare what the New Testament says to what the Quran says. If you're witnessing to a Muslim... Start with who you are and who you know your Lord is. Best way to witness to a Muslim, though, don't argue. Love your neighbor. Not merely love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor with the eyes and love and heart of Jesus who died for it. And we're not finished, but we're done. 